Hello and welcome to the Wigtown Book Festival podcast. I'm your host, Peggy Hughes. How lovely to be with you all again, and especially with this week's guest, who is a real festival favourite. That's right, it's Philip Arda. Winner of the Roald Dahl Funny Prize, he is the author of over 100 titles, including the Eddie Dickens, the Grunts and the Grubtown Tales books. Philip is a prolific writer of adult and children's fiction and non-fiction and tars over us mere mortals at over two metres tall. He often has trouble fitting into things designed for ordinary human beings, those being airplane seats, hotel beds and Wigtown Book Festival judges' thrones. So it's no surprise that we couldn't fit Philip into our ordinary podcast. He was so good that we had to dedicate an entire episode to the man himself. So sit back and enjoy our Arda special with Philip Arda. I spent um, all morning looking for um, my wallet, which I, I couldn't find anywhere. I thought I'd put it in my jacket. I men- own many jackets, so I went through all the jacket pockets of all the jackets. Couldn't find it, so I did that thing where you ring up. I have seven credit and debit cards, and I rang them up, and I said, I bet as soon as I put the phone down, I will find it. And then about five minutes, and it took me half an hour to cancel all these things, my son comes in and said, Dad, there was a pile of clean washing on top of your jacket on the banisters, and I took it upstairs and dumped it on the floor, and I've just oh. been talking through it, and there's your jacket. So I have no card at work, but I have my wallet. So obviously oh. I've got a special picture of you, nice yeah, picture of Daniel O'Donnell, all I need. Really. Yeah. All you need, all, all that you I need. need. Um, this is this is all going to make the cut, Philip. All that's a lovely preamble to the <laughs> to the main reason that we wanted to chat to you because you are indeed as well you know it a Wigtown Festival favourite. Mm. <laughs> I say you have very very good taste in Wigtown. I have to say, I believe, and I don't know whether it's true. I believe that I am going to be a judge, a sort of distant judge for Wigtown's Got Talent. So if it's happened without me, you'll have to break it to me gently. Cut right to the good stuff here. I mean, right, test yeah. I'm very bad at names, so I'm going to have to ask you, Peggy, to help me mm-hmm. out here. There is a wonderful woman who campaigned for that statue um, outside the Houses of Parliament. Caroline right. Criado Perez, I think exactly. you might know. Now, she and yeah. I, and she's a staunch feminist and a fine human being, she and I were both judges one year at an actual Wigton's Got Talent, and um, I was playing nasty judge because they wanted us to go against type. Obviously, I'm a pussycat in real life. And at one stage, she started licking my knee, and I thought, this is not in keeping with the, the image she projects. And I looked down, and there she had a small dog hidden in her handbag, <laughs> um, which I had not seen. It was a bit like Sorry Ooh from the Moomins, anyone familiar with them, rather a small dog, but without the Christmas hat. And she'd snuck this dog in, and, and it was it was the dog, not she, who was licking my knee. So that, that passed. But we, we got on very well. And I think that was the year that someone juggling penguins won, which was a shock because normally it is a child who wins because there is this feeble belief that they put in more effort and they should therefore win. But the standard was just not good enough. I mean, we can all jump and down narrowly avoiding the sharp edges of swords. I wasn't impressed. Um, but nothing came close that year, Peggy, when you and I were actually in oh. Wigton's Got Talent, when I placed uh, a great personal 
personal danger to myself. I place, if you remember, Barrows, um, other ballpoint pens are available, um, big Barrows from from a, a bag that you were holding into, mm-hmm, into my mm-hmm. beard like a sword swallowing axe. So I well remember it, Philip. Yeah. I think I think there were 10 or 11 Barrows in there by the end. I, I think it was probably one of the highlights, wasn't it? And when I was oh, asked... Career high for me. <laughs> ...to return another year, I said I would only come if I was given a throne and some some watsits, I think. Tula hoops, I beg your pardon. No, no, I don't like watsits, hula hoops. And that was the year uh, that, that, that that nice comedian chap who used to be on Nevermind the Buzzcocks. Phil Jupiter's with, with two L's, I believe. Phil I think you're right, yeah. Unorthodox. Very nice man. Um, there is a tradition that um, comedians give me lifts, um, Phil very kindly drove me somewhere, and another time I had Alexi Sale drive me somewhere. With Alexi, oh. he uh, this was um, not at Wigton. He he agreed to um, drive me somewhere to save someone else doing it. But then at the end, he said, um, I don't know the way, so could the person who was going to give me the lift drive in the car in front, and we would follow him, thus completely negating his reason for being there. He was in a car that he said was the same car that the French president had, so would I like to sit in the back? Uh, for the whole experience, but I chose to sit next to him. And I, I, he wasn't a great driver because he said left here, I think, which was about the only time he went off the road that we could have followed without having to follow the man in front. And he nearly rolled the car over because we took the grassy bank, the grassy knoll at the edge of the entrance to the hotel a little early. Anyway, rewinding Phil Jupiter's, I remember what I'm talking about. He was doing the judging, and I thought I the comparing of Wigton's Got Talent. And I was a little upset there was no throne. And then come half time, when people, or maybe when it was when people were doing all the calculations and the adding up to see who'd won, a throne, a lovely throne, a large throne. You may remember it was brought on stage, and I sat mm-hmm. down. And then I foolishly said, jokingly, ha, what about the hula hoops? And the next minute, I discovered that Adrian MBE, OBE, BHS, OAP, uh, who is the director, director of Wigton, <laughs> no one's quite sure what he does, but Anne Barclay's looking into it for us. Um, <laughs> he had provided, he had provided members of the audience with bags of hula hoops. And they wow. to throw them at me, except you, who I think thought, well, it would be funny to throw them at Philip, but no one will notice if I don't throw mine because I can then eat them myself. Then I can scoff them. Philip, I mean, that's a very Wigtown story. The, the very, the most special of festivals. I mean, how, how long have you been involved? I mean, I I think that's where we first met. Probably. You've been going a long time. Yes, it has. I think I was probably a cleaner there before before you came. I'm a, I'm a hospital train cleaner. I can use a fashaga. I mean, you don't even know what fashagering is, but let me tell you. I can fashaga like you wouldn't believe. Um, so, yes, I'm hospital trained, so I was probably doing a little cleaning there. Um, but now I've been coming a long, 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 long time, and I used to stay at the Tree Hotel because the very first year I went, the bed I stayed in in the B&B was smaller than I am. It was a single bed, but it was for a single human. And for anyone who doesn't have a poster of me on the back of their loo door, I'm six foot seven, I'm two metres tall, I'm rather wide. You're three humans in a trench coat, yeah, let's be fair. Yeah. in a trench coat. When you see <laughs> the Muppets, when you see the Muppets uh, pretending to be one person and they're all inside a coat, uh, <laughs> I'd some Hollywood, that's me. That's me indeed. Um, so I said, I love Wigton, 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 love Wigton. I love the 43-hour drive from the airport. I love the fact that when I leave Glasgow, planes are always delayed, so I spend six extra hours in an airport that they're always working on so there's nowhere to eat. Um, I love all that. 
but uh, I must stay in in a place where the room is bigger than I am, and hopefully the bed within the room is bigger. So I stay at the Krochtri regularly, but of course that's now closed, very sadly. Oh. So uh, I'm, I'm not sure what to do. Tell me, you know, you are, as anyone listening will have divined by now, you know, you're a man born to the stage, Philip. What, how's this period been for you working from home and what have you been working on? Well, that, that's a really good question because um, I suppose I should say people see me when I'm not at home by default because I'm very mean and I don't have people come to my house unless it's to water the servants or something. So the only time you'll see me is when I'm out and about. So people are going, oh, you're always out and about. You know, when we come to this festival, you're always here. But I I don't stay there for the rest of the year. You know, this (laughs) would have been, I think, my 23rd Edinburgh this year. So they go, oh, you're always at Edinburgh. But I'm not, you know, (laughs) up in Scotland for the rest of the year. So although I do attend lots of festivals, and although I have lost out, sadly, I was at the Hay Festival in Abu Dhabi, and I was due to go back to Abu Dhabi a few weeks later um, to do something else, and then I was supposed to be in uh, Switzerland. I, I have a very grand title at the Listowel Readers uh, Week Festival, which is the second oldest festival, current day festival in the world. I think Jolton is the oldest, and then comes Listowel. And I have this sort of director of puppetry or something. Um, I was going to be there, and we'd invited Michael Rosen over, and he was going to bring his family and a nice cottage by the sea for him. And then, of course, poor old Michael was uh, Mm, struck down with with the corona. Mm. Anything for publicity, that man. I mean, it's shocking. But I'm very, very glad that he's on Mm. on the road to recovery. So I have missed out on lots of things. But despite all that, I actually spend more of my year at home, on my own, in a room. So the odd thing for me is I'm actually – in a room which is normally just me, a selection of cuddly toys and fine antique furniture, um, <laughs> I'm actually sharing it. I'm throwing out my doors. I'm doing, um, I've had to do a lot of distant festivals. I normally do Witchwood, which is on a race course at Cheltenham between races, so you rarely have a stampede. And I've been going there for about 12 years, ever since they started. A, it's a music festival ever since they started a children's literature strand. It's great when I go there and people get really excited because they want the same old people back. They don't go, hey, let's have Anthony Horowitz, let's have Jacqueline Wilson. They want the same people every year so they can get all excited. And some of them came when they were toddlers and screamed and now they're you know they're sort of adult-like and things so that's very entertaining so i've been making videos in my garden for them but making it look like a festival and adding sound effects of rowdiness and things like that and uh, so i've actually been welcoming people into my home in a way i haven't really done that before so that has Mm. been a a little little ironic a little bit of irony there i think Mm. was it philip always the um author's life for you then I was born, I'm not going to go into great detail, although I love the sound of my own voice. I have a mirror here, by the way, so I can look at myself when I'm talking, so I'm sorry that you don't benefit from that. I was born a writer. Whether I could do anything with that or not is another matter, and there's always an element of luck in these things. But I was born writing, doing squiggles that were just pictures and and words in my own head, but just looked like scribbles in books and things. So I've always, always written, and I've always been a better writer than I am a, a speaker because you, you have a chance to craft what, what you want to say. So that was there, but what to do with it? I, I, I didn't really know. I mean, although I was a member of the Puffin Club, and I'm very fortunate in both my parents, uh, when they're alive, read. It's difficult, my father, to read now, being dead and cremated, even more difficult, I would imagine. Um, but so, so it was always a house, house full of books, no food, just books. Um, 
both in fact. Who needs food when you've got books? When you are nourished by the written word. So very true. <laughs> so I'm always surrounded by that. But I thought, well, I don't want to be a local journalist because they um, have to talk about scout meetings and things like that, or very, very boring court reports. Uh, so I, I, I decided by default that I'd be interested in going into advertising. And my father pulled a, pulled a few strings. That's got nothing to do with the story, but I just don't need to be left with an image of him being burnt to a crisp. So he was pulling some strings. Meanwhile, I managed to go to an advertising agency for a day called Charles Barker Lloyd and to meet up with a copywriter and find out how you could earn a living writing words. And I met this guy, and he was written, written an ad which goes, you can dream a little, you can dream a lot, but the best dreams of all are the ones you've got building with the Burnley. He, he went on to be quite well known. He was called Salman Rushdie. <laughs> I didn't I know he was an ad man. Oh, Did you well, work with him? <laughs> but it was very nice. So I was, I was, I don't know how old I was, let's say 16, 17, 18, 19. I wasn't there for four years. I just not sure how old I was. And I saw him and I thought, well, this sounds like fun. I quite like the idea of this. And in those days, there was only one advertising copywriting course in the whole of Great Britain. And through my sheer skill, wit, charm and dedication, I managed to get on this course. And it was in very, very glamorous, very lovely place called Watford College of Art. Um, and I went on this course, and you got a placement in an advertising agency, was, which was great. Um, and I didn't get a job at the agency. I was placed that very wisely. But um, some of my friends got a job at a place called McCann Erickson, who in those days did Levi's and Coca-Cola and mm. Kodak and stuff and Nescafe. Nescafe. No better way to start your day. Um, so I would just sit in their offices until one day someone thought I worked there and asked me to do an ad for Beef Eater Gin. So I ended up with a job there. I never planned, you see. <laughs> very good at planning. Anyway, by default, all the time, I was always, always writing stuff because I've been writing since I was very little and I never gave up and I kept going. So when people say to me, oh, I could probably write better than half the books I see in shops, I don't doubt that what you have to do is do it. And when you're rejected, you have to keep, 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 keep going. It's good advice. It is good advice. And I know that we've got we've got lots of writers and people who are at the beginning of their writing journey who mm. listen mm. into the podcast. But who, Philip, are, would you say, the, the writers that you were reading when you were little, if you were ever little? Um, who forged your interest? I read Sherlock Holmes. When I was about nine, I first read Sherlock Holmes. And I love Sherlock Holmes because the very clever thing about them is the short stories are the best ones. Count of the Baskervilles is incredibly famous. That's a, a novella, obviously, but it's not typical Sherlock Holmes. And there are even suggestions that he was given the story by somebody else and embellished it, a Mr. Robinson, I believe. But the, the short stories are great. Someone comes to see Holmes before the person has even come in the room. Holmes has deduced a lot about them by the way they walk up the stairs or he's caught sight of them as they're getting out of the cab or they come in and by their clothes or their watch or whatever he makes these observations they um, lay out the problem by tradition it can never be the person who's laying out the problem they can never turn out to be the one what done it Conan Doyle kept to that rule and then they have the solvy 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 bit and then it's all nicely resolved at the end so they really are stories with a beginning a middle and an, and an end and the hero is fantastic I suppose the only reason why one would want to be Sherlock Holmes is he wouldn't have to be Watson, because I imagine Sherlock Holmes would be extraordinarily annoying to live with. So I loved those. I thought they were great. But I think one of the greatest writers in the English language, who however much you admire, will always be underrated, is Raymond Chandler. I think mm. his use of language, I think he 
succeeded in everything he set out to do. We all admire writers who try. Paul Oster, I think, is a fabulous, another fabulous American writer. And sometimes he tries and he fails at something. And I really admire the trying because it's better than writing the same book 400 times. Chandler, he just had it. He had, and I don't actually mean walking down the mean streets. When people do pastiches of Philip Marlowe, his most famous character, they do this sort of ghastly Dashiell Hammett, you know, slug of whiskey and all that. I'm not talking about that. I mean, he will have someone talking to a sheriff and uh, the sheriff will use the correct word whom and then they'll both fall silent and go where did that come from and they work out how mm-hmm. whom got into the conversation and an extraordinary writer and i read him as a child and he is very very accessible so you understand it on one level and then you go back and read him as an adult on another level but i i, I do read widely i don't believe there's a distinction between you know literary fiction and and uh, straightforward fiction you know i love dickens mm-hmm. who i don't think one would consider literary <laughs> in any way, shape or form, then they've all got silly names and do silly things. This year is the 20th anniversary of my Eddie Dickens books. Um, mm-hmm. which got me, I think I mentioned Abba Dhabi Funny, thank you. Mm. I mentioned Abu Dhabi earlier, and, and by mistake, it was because of my Eddie Dickens book that I got my first trip to um, Abu Dhabi on the 200th anniversary of the birth and or death of Dickens, uh, because they wanted a, a, a children's author who knew about Dickens and, and the British Council googled Dickens children's author and my name came up and without bothering to read that I'd created a character called Eddie Dickens they rang me up and said do you know about Charles Dickens <laughs> do I know about Charles Dickens <laughs> and uh, they flew me over there and as I was flying over I, I said I'm afraid I will have to go um, business class not to be pushing my luck but I don't fit in economy and they said well we normally only do economy but okay but don't tell anyone and and in luxury read quickly read um, Claire Tomlin's um, auto, uh, not sorry her biography of Dickens and I was an expert for, for a week or so I mean 20, 20 years Philip how that, that's an extraordinary responsibility to thousands of little readers do you feel that responsibility as a as a writer for well, children I, I, I always think that children's writers you know because you, you're just reaching people at such a brilliant age their imaginations are all over you know kind of just forming those are the writers that we carry with us i think yeah. and i just wonder what that feels like it, as one it's very nice because phrases from my books become sort of part of family phrases you know what i mean if you really enjoy mm-hmm. a book or a poem or something you might steal a, a line from it and i'm always very touched when i'm talking about eggy snacks or whatever and people go oh yeah yeah we got that phrase from your book talking of responsibility what i love now is because it's 20 years children who were reading these books or having them read to them when they were seven, eight, nine, and now 27, 28, 29, 30. Mm-hmm. And they're getting in touch with me and saying, I was just a kid when I read the book, or I love this, or I'm reading it to my children now, or you sent me a letter. And that's great because I always feel terrible with fan mail. There's always, I always, always try and answer it. There's always the one that gets mislaid. And then they're the ones who write me fabulous letters, but they forget to put their address. So they're going, that Philip Arder never wrote back to me, the beep, when it's mm-hmm. simply because I didn't know where to send it to. And they, they've saved up their pocket money. They've bought a rifle. They're just getting the telescopic sights. And they're going to use lockdown to track me down and blow my head off like a watermelon. Um, so it is a responsibility. But the important thing is not to let it colour the writing, I think. I had a character, mm. uh, a second series, which uh, ended up in quite a few languages, which I sort of associate with Eddie Dickens, because in fact, some of them were being written at the same time, because Eddie Dickens 
most people think of it as a trilogy, but it actually ended up as six books. Between them, I was writing um, Unlikely Exploits, which begins with a book called The Fall of Fergal, in which a boy falls from a skyscraper and is killed. And the cover of the book, and that series is illustrated by the wonderful David Roberts, as, as are the Eddie Dickens I associate and connect them with each other. There was going to be a presentation to Waterstones showing them the um, cover of The Fall of Fergal with Fergal falling from a skyscraper. And it was presented on, um, well, the 11th of September, 2001, I think it was. So 9-11 uh, didn't go down too well having that picture, but it's still still, <laughs> still sold in America. In that, there's a character called Mr. Mags, and David Roberts absolutely loved Mr. Mags, and he loved drawing Mr. Mags. And I thought, oh no, what he doesn't know is Mr. Mags gets killed at the end of book two. Anyone who hasn't read the series, just ignore this bit. And he's going, don't kill Mr. Mags. I love his, you know, we've done nine books together, and it's my favorite guy. But Mr. Mags had to go, I'm afraid. So um, you can't can't be influenced in that way. And it is a responsibility, but I never, I, I, I always have to be true to myself. Which is why I dress the way I do. You have to believe well, in what you do. I think a little, a little bit of peril is a yeah. good thing in a uh, book for young yeah. people. And, and speaking of you and I, of course, ha- shared a stage at Wigtown, not just with the uh, at Wigtown's Got Talent, but but talking uh, about um, Toby Jansen. Why? What do the Moomins mean to you, Philip? Right. Well, I, I I was hoping we might come around to the Moomins, which is why I didn't mention them as books uh, I was reading. Toby Jansen wrote these wonderful Moomin stories, and there's been a resurgence recently for two reasons. One is someone suddenly realised somewhere that wouldn't have marvellous drawings of Moomins and characters, who even if you don't know by name, you'd probably recognise if you saw, if they appeared on mugs and plates and here, there and everywhere. And then a Moomin shop to shop open, selling trays and mouse mats. Uh, and there was all things Moomin. So in that respect, that was wonderful. And I thought, oh, this is great. This is lovely. But for me, what is important are the stories. The writing is just, the way she writes, the fact that gold nuggets look nice lining a flower bed or if you drop diamonds in a in a mountain stream and look at them they look absolutely beautiful so we may as well leave them there the idea of friendship the extended family the idea of you know there are so many different looking creatures there are hemulins that look a bit like moomins but they wear dresses because it's never occurred to them to invent trousers there's little mai who's absolutely tiny who spends a lot of time living in a moomin mama's sewing box there's snuffkin who's actually a half brother which comes as a shock to some people because they both share the mimble as their mother although little mai is very small and much smaller than the Mimble's daughter, she's still the oldest. So there's a there's a lot a lot going on there, and they are absolutely wonderful books. But people getting great pictures, great pictures. But then a joy of joys. People who did the rough guides sold the rough guides somewhere else, had all this money, and thought, what should we do with it? And they thought, why don't we reprint a fantastic book called The Summer Book? Uh, another story by Toby Hansen, but more of a an adult story. I'd say it's a novella, really. And they brought it out, and it was launched at the Finnish embassy because although Toby Hansen wrote in Swedish, she was Finnish, and Philip Pullman was there, and Ali Smith was there, and Esther Freud was there, the gorgeous Philip Ard was there. And then Sophia Janssen, who is Toby Janssen, who's now died, sadly, is her niece, and uh, also is sort of runs the whole Moomin empire now with her second husband, Roly. And uh, she was very pleased what sort of books did. And to cut a long, but beautifully told, if I may say so, story short, sort of book ended up doing these collector's editions, hardback editions with lovely covers of the original eight 
uh, Moomin stories, because we don't count the Moomins in the Great Flood, because that was sort of published rather later and is a bit strange and doesn't quite follow the chronology. And they spent ages choosing the very best cover and the very best version and the very best pictures. And uh, they're just absolutely lovely. So there has been this renewed interest. And I'm so pleased because as a philosophy, I don't think you can beat Tovi Anson. And Peril, you were talking about Peril, Comet in Moominland, a a comet is going to crash, possibly destroy much of the Earth. This is written at the time when worrying about war and the atomic bomb. And the Great Flood earlier on was about separation and things. And at a time now where we have so many terrible things going on around the world, they've been slightly sidetracked recently because of the joys, firstly, of Brexit, no comment, and also the coronavirus. We're forgetting the terrible thing going on with people in camps and migratory problems, etc., and, and terrible things going on in China at the moment. And, and this philosophy of you can get through peril. You know, the colour of your skin, the size of your nose, the number of your feet is irrelevant, is as powerful today as it was when Tove was, was writing all those years ago. Very quick Tove's story. I think I told you at the time, but I can bore your listeners. First time I met Sophia was the, the time at the Finnish ambassador's residence with Philip Pullman and various other people, and people introduced me to her, and she's saying, you must come and stay at the island. Anytime you want to come to the island, come to the island. And I thought, this is fantastic. And then at the end of the evening, I was saying, it was lovely to see you, and she said, there's a film on at the uh, British Film Institute they're doing a season of lesbian and gay films and uh, Torve and and her partner um, did these very funny home movies when they went round America and just laughed at people <laughs> on steamboats in the Mississippi and things which is great two batty women with handbags being snippy was fantastic <laughs> um, if, you, if you go to the BFI next weekend um, you know we'll uh, I'll have a couple of tickets behind mm. the desk for you and your wife so we just had a baby Bob when I say we my wife did all the work I just asked her to keep the noise down because I said I have a headache and the midwife believed me and boy you should see the look she gave me anyway when Eloise was saying back together she had the child and I went up and asked for the tickets I said uh Philip I had a couple of tickets um been put behind for me they looked and they couldn't find them and I thought for a bit and said Philip Pullman and they went yes and gave me the tickets so the only reason I was invited to the island was because she thought I was somebody else and I told her this we did an event in um, Singapore together and we had a packed house and I managed to tell her and she went a terrible colour and denied it with every fibre of her being but we're still talking so uh, I'm mistaken identity twice mistaken identity twice (laughs) riding on Dickens's coattails this is unbelievable so I'm a huge women fan and we should say and the reason why I was talking is I, I had the joy of writing a book called The World of Moomin Valley which is full of the first half of the book is written telling you all about the creatures and everything and as though they are real because of course they are and the second part of the book is looking at Tovi's life as an artist and her family and things like that and I was very fortunate in that I had a fantastic researcher who managed to get hold of huge amounts of information and a material for me and I couldn't have done it without her. And they all lived happily ever after. Philip, one more for the road. Um, What are you working on right now? What's coming next? It's been a very interesting time for me. I have moved into picture books. I think as I head towards my second childhood, you know, I'm getting on a bit, which is hard to believe because I look younger than ever. I can say this safely, being audio only. And I, I did a book called Bunnies on the Bus. Bunnies on the Bus. No wonder there's a fuss about Bunnies on the Bus, which is illustrated by the wonderful Ben Mantle. Now, a picture book, obviously, a lot of it has to do with the pictures. And he's been absolutely fantastic. But let's remember, it was my idea. Yeah. And if you thought you heard some flatulence, by the way, that someone's actually skidding up our 
drive. So yes, so Bunny's on the bus, that's great fun. And at the end of Bunny's on the bus, they jump onto a train. So it's, oh no, here we go again. So the sequel, everyone thinks it's Bunny's on the train. So I thought I'll write Bunny's in a boat instead, just to annoy them. So that's what I did. So Ben is hopefully <laughs> Yes, that's right. Hopefully Ben is working on that at the moment. I did a book with Elizabeth Relwick, Arden Elwick. We do lots of books together. We work in a slightly different way in Bulgaria. No, um, uh, people would be very surprised to know that when someone like Julia and my good friend Axel Scheffler, who's illustrated a lot of my books, they, they don't sit together and discuss it and everything. Julia writes the book, gives it to Axel. Axel draws it. Julia goes, you've made his nose too big and you've forgotten to draw his toenails. He does that and then the book comes out. They don't sit in rooms and discuss it. And that's me and Ben, we don't do that. But with Alyssa, we work together as Arda and Elwick and we work together and work things out before the publisher necessarily sees it. And then they'll say, oh, could you do this or could you do that? But it's a much more collaborative way of working, which is interesting. So we have a series called Stick and Fetch, um, which is about a girl called Sally Stick and her dog called Fetch. It was originally called Burger and Fries. The dog was a poodle. So he's French fries, you see. <laughs> but we were told it'd be too fattening to read a book about burger and fries. So they became Stick mm. and Fetch. And I agreed. I really agreed to these things. But I actually agreed in that instance. And they've done really well. And for the first time, because the first two books were individual adventures, and they're very difficult to write, because Stick and Fetch, girl and her dog, think they're detectives, but they're not. And they solve cases that don't exist. So, for example, they may go to the museum, and it's lunchtime, and it's closed. And they go, oh, it's never closed. There must have been a robber or something. And they look through a window, and they see a square on the wall where it's not as faded as the wall around it. So something's obviously been taken down. So obviously a picture's been stolen. And they look around outside as they look into the window, and on the ground is a single gardening glove. So they go, <gasps> burglars wear gloves. Obviously after dark, if it was during daytime, it would have been a housebreak. And they go, and there's only one glove, so it must have been a one-armed burglar. And they go, it smells of flowers. Where do you get flowers from? The florist. So they whiz around to the florist. And while they're at the florist, at the library opposite, it's story time. And a pirate with a hook is walking in to read his book. <laughs> yeah. so you've only got one arm you see so they're doing all this solving of things that don't yeah. exist now when you've written a, two books which have three or four cases in each it's very difficult to come up with endless different cases so the new book that's just out is called off the leash and they get they're staying in a hotel they're they're in a corridor and they discover a trolley which has got lots of little shampoos on it and lots of clean towels so they realize there are some shampoo thieves there who are obviously breaking into the rooms and taking lots of little shampoos and clean towels and it all escalates out of control and it ends with them completely destroying a reunion of elderly world war ii um sailors so that was fun um but Alicia and i've also done a picture book together called you can't count on dinosaurs and it's called an almost counting book because the problem is that the Tyrannosaurus Rex keeps eating the other dinosaur. Oh, Quite shocking, of course. Rexes. Yeah, I know, but it's natural. So if anyone else would say, oh, don't worry, he'll burp them up and they'll all be fine at the end, they won't. They won't. They're eaten. It's not going to oh. end well. So I have a new, I've just had another picture book accepted by Walker, which is superb. And I've just, just sent one off to another publisher. So I, I'm keeping good and busy. But, 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 mm. but, but, one of the big highlights of uh, lockdown has been Draw with Rob. Now, because you're up in Scotland and they're all a bit funny out there, you might have avoided this. But Draw with Rob, Rob Bidolf two times a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays, puts up some of the best draw-along videos you could ever hope to see on various platforms. I don't just mean stations. Um, he was on Twitter and Facebook and on YouTube. 
and probably on his website, I'd imagine. And it's got very nice music and a nice intro. And he just shows you, you never see him, which is a relief because he's not very pleasing to the eye. But his hands are all right. He doesn't bite his nails. He don't, you know, you look at some people and you think, I bet they've got smelly fingers. You don't think that. And he draws, he talks for about 10 minutes and he's got a lovely soothing voice. Um, he'd probably make a really good con man. He, and he talks and he shows you how to draw these things. And then he posts pictures of uh, children holding up the pictures they've done or just their pictures and thousands and thousands of people. So his publisher, money-grubbing people, who are obviously, in effect, feeding off the death that is the coronavirus, have brought out, uh, on the backs of the suffering, have brought out a book called Draw with Rob to tie in with the series. And I think it's the number one bestseller on all on a number of the lists of books in Britain at the moment. So it's very mm-hmm. nice for Rob um, that he gets to work with me and he does this series called The Nine Lives of Furry Perry Bean Cat. Because I used to have a cat called Bean Cat who was very furry and very purry. And I loved her dearly because she was the first pet I ever had, although I was an adult. Because as a child, I just had for one weekend the class tadpole. Oh. I don't think he was even at the leg stage then. And so I thought, well, rather than nine lives, meaning almost dying and surviving, why can't we have a cat that has nine lives and each life is different? So one day she'll nice. turn around, snuggle down and wake up and she's a pirate captain's cat then the next time she'll wake up she's the library cat and the next time she'll wake up she'll be the victorian railway cat and the problem is every time she wakes up she has no recollection of who her friends are who our enemies are where she is but to them everyone else she's always been there so she'll wake up in a railway station and she doesn't know who she belongs to whether she should be there whether she should trust this person or that person or that animal so i've had fantastic fun doing them and uh, black and white drawings rob uh, has a special deal where all his color work can only be with harper collins but we got around that by him doing black and white pictures for me at Simon and & Schuster and I'm very excited Brilliant. Plenty to look forward to from the House of Arda Thank you so much to Philip for joining us It is always a complete treat to run into him at festivals and frankly you can't miss him so really nice to get to catch up uh, for the Wigtown podcast and thank you so much to you for tuning in with us again if it's again and for the first time if it's the first time we hope it won't be the last time and we hope that we'll see you again soon in the meanwhile take good care of yourselves bye bye for now